Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Talking to Belinda was like talking to a long lost friend. When we first spoke, I was really surprised to learn about the similarities in our cultural experiences as Asian women and how we've experienced mainstream American culture. And so we continue that conversation today. A little bit about Belinda. She is the coordinator of the Urban Food Systems Program at Seattle Parks and Recreation, where she oversees several acres of public space dedicated to growing food. And so racial and social justice is front and center of this work. And so we talked about how she embeds those values into her work and how she uses her expertise in environmental education to connect people of all age groups with their environment and their land from an environmental justice lens. Much of our conversation focused on how her identity as a first generation Chinese American really influenced her path into the environmental profession. She reflects on her experiences of growing up in the U.S. at a time when Asian Americans were often othered and how nature and close by woods provided solace. She talks about how she has struggled in her profession to create a sense of belonging and some of the macro and microaggressions she has had to bear, including being referred to mental health professionals for expressing her concerns for racist acts in the workplace. Of course, we talk about how she has built her resiliency and learning to overcome these challenges on a daily basis, which has also resulted in her co-founding the Seattle chapter for the environmental professionals of color, which is a great initiative. And if there are environmental professionals of color out there who are interested in creating their own chapter, I highly recommend that you reach out to Belinda to learn about how she went about co-founding the Seattle chapter. Belinda is just such a kind person and a brave woman who really speaks her truth. And I really admire that about her. I hope you see it too in this conversation and I hope you enjoy. How did your childhood experiences shape your passion for the environment? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, (laughs) I grew up in a suburb of New York City, immediately north of the city. And I felt very blessed to be surrounded by woodlands, beaches, wetlands, streams, just a really wonderful environment. And I came to know that environment in a much more personal way. Didn't expect it to happen. I mean, this is with hindsight, of course. Those surroundings came to mean something very, very personal and intimate to me. So as the daughter of immigrants from Southeast China, my folks were refugees post-World War II. Well, when the communists overtook the country, they fled. And then to seek a better life for themselves and their families, they came to the United States and settled close to New York City, which happens to have one of the largest Chinatowns in the nation. Yeah. So anyway, growing up in an immigrant family and having a culture inside under one roof, and then once school started, you know, I was going to school in a white suburban setting in a culture that was new to my family. And they were only beginning to get to know it. And 
as a child, it was all brand new to me. And pretty soon there was conflict that came from living in two different cultures and uh, the pressures of what it means to be a firstborn in a Chinese immigrant family, the typical things like (laughs) if I had followed my parents' aspirations, you know, my choices were doctor, lawyer, or Mm -hmm. engineer, you know, something like that. Can totally relate to that as a South Asian, so. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's what you were born to do. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. And then being surrounded by white peers who saw me as other and like, oh, you're interesting. What are you about? Oh, you're working Mm -hmm. class. Oh, well, I don't know if I should even be talking with you. You know, I mean, not that they said that outright. Right. But the way that they handled themselves around me told me that I was different and not somebody that they would invite home to play or to introduce to their families. Mm. So that was very painful. And along with that came just the stereotypes and the things that come out of children's mouths. So between the pressure at home to succeed and, and then to be in an environment that was not accepting and not very friendly, I found peace and quiet in the parks, the wooded parks around my home. And I would retreat there just to cut down on the number of voices in my head, just to have some quiet and just to be able to hear my own voice. And while retreating into these wooded areas, came to know the trees and the bushes and plants. And I saw the beauty in them and their beauty helped to just quiet the noise. And those woodlands, those parks just became very sacred to me and became friends, honestly. Mm. And so they gave me so much without talking. They gave so much and (laughs) I talked with them, you know, and they heard so much. And in my childhood, I made a promise that I would like to pay this forward and somehow find a way to improve the relationship between human beings and the environment. At the time I was growing up, there were, in the news, there was an environmental movement that was beginning to rev up. And there were concerns about environmental degradation. And there were lots and lots of programs on the then-growing TV networks (laughs) that were very, very influential as well. So through lived experience of the beauty of nature and the healing aspects of it for myself and my needs, and then what was going on in the bigger world, all that definitely fed my passion for the natural environment. Yeah. I felt like I was in the woods with you when you were describing your experience of just having a space of sanctuary where you felt like you belonged and you could get a space to just quiet your mind and rejuvenate or just have that time for yourself and reflect. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really beautiful. I think it would make such a great movie scene. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I really sympathize with individuals such as yourself who've grown up in a time when there wasn't much 
diversity or it wasn't really recognized as something to be celebrated. And just, I think, not great up in the U.S., but seeing how kids get bullied (laughs) for just the way they look, what they bring to lunch. I mean, that's just something that I didn't necessarily experience it to that extent. I'm sorry you had to go through that, but it also, I feel, created an opportunity for you to dedicate yourself to something bigger and also be a part of this movement to create a greater awareness for the beauty of diversity in the environmental movement. So thank you. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Of course. So I watched a a video of you on a panel with Al Gore, and you were part of a forum that was called the Climate Reality Leader Forum. Yes. And Al Gore was going around and asking people what their experiences or what's their story. And you started with quite a punch (laughs) and you said, hate has a footprint. Yes. And that just, it really caught my attention and I wanted to know more. And as you described it, I felt that this was a part of your narrative that I think would resonate with a lot of people. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could reshare that with us. Oh, yeah. And, and I could provide a little more background about that as well. So the first time I heard that phrase, it was in a workshop with an environmental educator of color who I deeply admire and respect, uh, Jordan Keith, the founder of Urban Wilderness Project. And she was conducting a workshop about fossil fuels and climate change and talking about the impacts to people of color. Mm -hmm. And so within the context of her workshop, she was talking about safety for Black, Indigenous, and people of color that in order to stay physically safe, that sometimes it forced a choice between like cycling or walking, making a choice for fossil fuel transportation. So either in your own vehicle or by public transportation. So that was the very first time that I had heard of it. And I could definitely relate because with my own family, I know that we drove to a lot of different places. One, because of distance and the lack of public transportation. But yeah, safety was an issue. So, and the way that Jordan phrased it was hate has a carbon footprint. And that has stuck with me ever, ever since. And over time, the meaning associated with it for me has only grown deeper. So for me, that carbon footprint started building with the genocide of Native people on this continent and with the enslavement of African peoples and generations once on these shores. The stolen land along with the stolen people used to fuel industrialization. In terms of land, the industrialized agriculture using petroleum-based fertilizers to force the soil to produce until it's exhausted, to grow a transportation system that has taken away from the health of so many, and essentially all of this breaking multiples of life cycles 
and relationships and reciprocity, all of that building up carbon over and over and over again, sacrificing life Mm -hmm. and distancing from those cycles. It has just thickened and densified (laughs) this carbon footprint. Wow. Yeah. That's just, it's so powerful because it describes the history of oppression on people and environment in a way that I think people who care about environmental issues can relate to. Or it just takes it to a whole other level. Because, you know, when you talk about carbon footprints, you just think about mostly in terms of consumption and waste. Mm-hmm. But this is really taking it to another level of the value of human life and well-being, livelihood, cultures that have been impacted severely for for generations. So it just really touched me. Yeah, yeah. Well, who'd have thought that human beings would commoditize other human beings? (laughs) That's at the root of it. Fueled by white supremacist culture. One of the things that this makes me think about is in terms of the lifespan of the earth, Life existed on Earth for billions and billions of years prior to human existence. And if you were to use like, and maybe it's very apropos to this COVID time, if you take the lifetime of the Earth, symbolized by a roll of toilet paper, (laughs) human beings' existence on Earth is that last little bit of tissue that holds onto that cardboard roll in the center. That's it. Human beings' existence on Earth is a blink compared to the age of the Earth itself. Mm. And science has shown that there is no biological basis for race. And anthropologists, the more that they, in their research, they reveal how racism is a socioeconomic political construct. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. So we cannot move forward and talk about sustainability without equity. Human presence on the earth, it all originated out of Africa, out of what we now know as Africa. So that mitochondrial Eve, we are all, (laughs) you know, our bodies internally on a very cellular level show how we are humanly related, right? There is no race. Mm -hmm. We can't have sustainability without equity. And there's no reason why anybody who's born on this earth should have to suffer any kind of disparity because of the color of their skin. It was not that way when human beings came out of the muck, (laughs) you know, however millennia ago. Yeah. Well, it's uh, just thinking about how racism did come about or not even racism, but just setting ourselves apart based on the color of our skin and how we've, over the years, institutionalized it. And it's now sort of, I don't want to say a part of our DNA, but it's just within, it's just internalized into almost everything that we do and the way we think. And it's unfortunate, but I also do believe that at the end of the day, we fundamentally see each other as human beings and I hope that we can just tap into that a little bit more (laughs) and we've seen moments in history when we have done so and I think with the pandemic to a certain extent we are seeing kind of these 
barriers break, but we have so much more to go still, and especially in the environmental space. And you're trying to change that. Your background is in environmental education, and you've had an array of experiences in this profession. And at the center of it is race and social justice. So how has this approach been critical to empowering the youth that you work with who come from different backgrounds? Well, I went into education because as a young person, I could not understand. I went and pursued degrees in environmental education and well, actually, first as an environmental scientist and then in education. And in my formative years, it was because having a conversation with an elder, trying to understand why this hate goes around the way it does and why I get treated the way I do. And this elder said, well, it's because people are not informed. They don't know their own history. And so they're ill-educated. And so that's where I got a notion to like, you know what? I would like to help people understand that history. If it could help bring peace between peoples and with the environment, I'm there. So I've invested in that. And when it comes to young people, the race and social justice is front and center to try to break the chain of implicit bias and raise awareness of how this stuff is baked into our institutions. And so to help nurture this understanding before the beginning of career choosing, and then even if young people don't choose environmentalism, they have this knowledge, which is portable, and they could take it with them wherever they go and hopefully make choices in their own lives that are respectful of themselves, of the communities that they're in, and of the environment. Mm -hmm. And so can you give us specific examples of how you've been able to embed these values of diversity and inclusion into your educational practices? Oh, yeah. So I, I'm the coordinator for the Urban Food Systems Program at Seattle Parks and Recreation. And working for the city of Seattle, I'm very proud to say that in 2004, Seattle was the first city to launch a race and social justice initiative. And then in 2014, they added on an equity and environment initiative. And so I front and center those initiatives. And in that front and centering related to audience, I work with Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. And that is inclusive of immigrant, refugees, people with low incomes, and limited English proficiency. And there are other vulnerabilities that when you cross it with race, it deepens disparities and experience. So I front and center those audiences. And Prior, I mentioned about working with youth, and I do want to say that I do not put it on youth alone to change you know, society. In my program design, I work intergenerationally, and I include race and social justice from the beginning, along with tools for accountability, and primarily through program evaluation. How do we know that we've accomplished what we want to accomplish? 
it is usual to use a logic model. And I remember when I first came across logic model, I didn't really like it. But um, mm-hmm. uh, but over time, I have grown to really embrace logic models because they force you to go from the very, very beginning when a program is a twinkle in the eye all the way through to the end. And through that kind of labor, you can really ensure that you are on track for doing the race and social justice work because it's there from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And the Race and Social Justice Initiative has built up tools over time. There is something called a race and social justice tool. And essentially, it is asking questions like, who benefits from this? Who pays? That's how I build it in. I I make sure it's there from the beginning. When I was an entry-level employee in environmental education, oh my gosh, I often was the only person of color on the staff. It was like the norm to get to the end of program development and then go, oh yeah, yeah, people of color. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Belinda, can you go out and you can be that person to liaison with communities of color, okay? Oh, wow. And it was this last minute thing. An afterthought. An afterthought, exactly. An add-on. An add-on. If we have the time, if we have the resources, there was always an if associated with communities of color. It was like associated with the services to communities of color. And there was no thought about bringing in people of color unless it was through the front desk and with a ticket, you know, or to serve some kind of political purpose. Yeah. And has that changed over time? I would like to say that it has, but there's (laughs) there's still a long, long way to go. A long, long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, gosh, I with you on so many levels, and I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but I've had similar experiences being the only one of my kind in the room. Mm. And it's something you notice every time. Mm -hmm. And it's something that you have to be hyper aware of. Mm -hmm. And so how did you go about navigating such spaces? Well, for a while, I had a lot of discomfort, a lot of discomfort. And I tried to have these conversations with my colleagues with not much success. Mm. And that was when on my own time, I began to search for answers to these questions. Like, why is it like this? Why is it like this? And got on a journey studying environmental history, environmental justice. I had to do that on my own. It, my colleagues weren't going to support me on that. I mean, they tokenized, they worked from a place of tokenization. And I remember when I got a little more experience and workshops under my belt, you know, I tried to go deeper and it was just very hurtful. And ultimately in the long run, the workplace just increasingly over my career got more and more, I became more and more dissatisfied with the status quo. And there were very, very few people of color. And when we found each other, we would definitely hang out (laughs) and support each other. Where it came to a head was in 2010-11, I was beginning to hear about the Center for Diversity and the Environment. 
and the founder, Marcelo Bonta. And the moment that I could, I went and took a workshop. And when I arrived, I saw this man of color standing up front and words were coming out of his mouth that reflected my own personal journey. And I was like, oh my gosh, somebody who understands me. And there were several times over the course of that workshop that I shed tears of joy like and relief, like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And Marcelo had a teaching partner who was also a person of color. It was just so empowering. And it was exactly what I needed. Anyway, it was through the Center of Diversity and Environment and Marcelo and his workshop partner, Keta Gonzalez, they got funding to start a network of environmental professional of color chapters. In 2012 was the official beginning of the environmental professionals of color chapter in Seattle. And that is what kept me sane because my professional workplace was not a nurturing place. I didn't have peers who could understand me. My peers actually saw me as other. And quite honestly, they didn't respect me as an environmental educator. They didn't think I was from their criteria and their perspective as authentic. Mm. And so I got pigeonholed as the race and social justice staff person. And then I didn't have managers that understood me either. And and if I tried to talk about the impacts of this, I would get a reference to the health and wellness services afforded city employees. So suggesting that it was a mental health issue. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, what? Gosh, you know, I, I mean, and in part, yeah. Yeah, but, in part it but, is. Yes, the trauma yeah, that you've it, gone through. Yes, you need yeah. Yeah. However, there was no desire at all to try to understand the racism. It was not uncommon for me to be dismissed as the angry Asian woman or frustrated or emotional or whatever. Just so many labels. And yet I was also seen, here's another tokenization, as a model minority. So anytime they needed some kind of work to be done, Mm. they extracted that from me. So it was just like, oh my gosh. And then here came the Center for Diversity and Environment, and they could see me. They could see me. And I was in community with people who could see me as a professional. Yeah. That is a lot of the impetus for my investment in EPOC Seattle, the EPOC being short for Environmental Professionals of Color. And it gave me a place where I could try to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you found that. And I I was also excited when I found out about EPOC at CDE as I was beginning on this journey of questioning whether am I the only one in this? Right. <laughs> and I just you know, growing up in Kenya, I didn't have other environmentalists necessarily to look up to or Kenyan Indian environmentalists coming to the U.S. Mm -hmm. I just always felt isolated to a certain extent. And it was great having those allies. But another thing is a lot of kind of my cultural experiences in the U.S. or of microaggressions or biases, I didn't recognize what was happening at that time because I wasn't familiar with it. Oh, gosh. I hadn't grown up in it. And so it's only more recently 
that I've come into contact with some people who are experts on these issues of racism and anti-racism. And they're like, uh, do you know what's happening to you? I'm like, no. (laughs) And I think that's kind of raised my awareness. And it's now making me go back on those past experiences that I had. And it's kind of allowing me to process it in a different light where it felt weird or like not right at that time, but I didn't know what it was called. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And and now I do. I'm like, oh, that is a microaggression. And it felt weird. Yeah. Yeah. I so understand what you're saying there. That was part of my experience as well. I I could feel that something was wrong in my heart, in my chest, in my gut. I could feel this isn't right, but I didn't have the words to express it, my concern. Mm -hmm. And so so that's where the dismissiveness came. And then part of the training through CDE gave me that vocabulary. And it was like, just like what you were saying, it gave me a name of what that behavior was. Yeah. Oh, that's gaslighting. That's a microaggression. That's distancing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's denial. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's invalidating my position or so strange. And I'm still learning a lot of these kind of behaviors. And as I'm identifying them, I'm also trying to teach myself how to stand up for myself in situations where I may feel like I am being victimized or I could be a potential victim. And I think that is kind of really hard for me to do coming from a culture where we've typically just keep our heads down and work hard and you'll be rewarded. Yeah, just don't try to rock the boat. But I don't know. It's kind of opposite to why I did become an environmentalist is I'm not the kind that will, you know, not rock the boat. So unless it's really needed and having to stand up for what I believe is right. Yeah. I can relate to what you're saying there too. Because uh, I remember one of my teachers in grade school called me shy. And shyness at that time just related to the way I was getting treated. It meant Mm -hmm. so much more in my kid brain being shy to me indicated that I was like a mat, right? A floor mat that people could just run over. Mm. So interesting enough, I, I gosh, there's so much what you just said that I can relate with in the Chinese culture that I grew up in. Females in particular, right? You are to be of service, right? You, mm-hmm. you are to, well, and then being a firstborn in the United States, you know, that pressure, like we, we need you to grow up and be productive and then help take care of us in our old age. That's, you know, <laughs> messaging from yeah. there. And then, Continue the legacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then in order to do that, you need to survive, right? And so inadvertently, my parents taught me how to navigate the culture by basically disappearing, by being in visible. Yes. And so if you stay quiet, you can live to see another day. You just walk away, just walk away or just work harder because your work will speak for itself. You don't have to speak for your work. Your work will speak for you. Yes. Yes. And I have to say that that still continues to be in me. And I've had to grow into this activist role and learn how to represent myself and and to speak. Mm -hmm. I've had to work very hard to find my own voice and give myself permission to use it. 
And that's going against a lot of that first teachings. The family's the first teacher. Yeah. And it's no matter how hard I try to break out of some of those toxic culturalisms around South Asian women in my community where, you know, you just, you have to be subdued don't be noisy or don't let your presence be known so much yes. in the room. <laughs> you know, it wasn't said. Yes. And I think I grew up in a fairly progressive community, but I would see parts of that come out from time to time. And I think seeing it so much, obviously I adapted some of that behavior and it expressed itself in the workplace. And what I found like in the American workplace, there's and what was communicated to me to supervisors was like, you need to talk more and you need to say what you think. And and I believe that to a certain extent you should. But I think what came into play was my upbringing of observe and speak when you need to. And also trying to, whenever I felt like I was threatened or vulnerable, it was put your head down, do the work and you'll be recognized for it. So there were just like all of these competing cultural behavioral norms that I had kind of picked up as I grew up in the South Asian community in, in Kenya that I started to recognize were showing or, or manifesting themselves in the American kind of workplace, which tended to be more about like make sure that you are the loudest and that you're seen <laughs> and that also assimilating as much as I could because there's so many conversations where it's like about pop culture or just like mm-hmm. random stuff where I was like, I don't even know what yeah. you're talking about. And I'd have to yeah. Google it and I'd try to learn it, yeah. memorize it so that I could be a part of a conversation in the future or Google it while I'm, you know, in a circle of friends. It's a lot of work having it's not just the work, like doing the actual work, but it's also doing the work of trying to like be part of this pack that doesn't look like you, that may not ever accept you just based on how you look and think. Mm-hmm. But you're putting in all this like work. <laughs> right. That emotional labor. Yes. Yeah. 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 I remember within my home culture about saving face. You don't want to ever embarrass the family. Mm, yes. And then also respect for elders. Ooh, the respect for elders part was taken advantage of in the workplace. Oh my gosh, right? And yeah. oh gosh, that one, when the peers, the white peers would come back at you and use it against me. Like, why didn't you say anything? Because to me, right, through my cultural lens, that's a saving face kind of thing. I'm not going to say something that might possibly shame you right, or make you look bad in front of somebody else. We talk about that after the meeting. Mm-hmm. But honestly, the cherry picking of rules, another one of those white supremacist cultural behaviors, cherry picking the rules, moving the target on the rules. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I don't think I fully <laughs> understood. And I granted, I'm sure a lot of people may have similar experience, whether they're people of color or not, mm-hmm. that struggle with this grayness of the American workplace can get, I'm sure, frustrating for some people. Right. Like, go ahead and take initiative. Yeah. But then you also have to be a team member. <laughs> All right. And again, just ample amounts of material for cherry picking. Yeah. 
Uh, and then it's like also this whole thing of it's an extroverted culture, which is so not like the South Asian culture, at least the one that I grew up in. It's just a complete opposite of how I was raised or like what I was familiar with that just caused a lot of conflict over the years. So, But I'm glad I recognize it because at first it was like, oh, I'm just going to try and assimilate. But it became very difficult assimilating that now I'm trying to like figure out where is that balance of preserving my identity, my personal and cultural identity to still being able to work in a culture that I wasn't raised in or familiar with. Mm -hmm. So still on this theme of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the environmental space, you talked a little bit about how you created the Seattle chapter for the environmental professionals of color. And I wish I had something like that. Yeah. (laughs) And it's great that you were able to create that for your peers, your colleagues in that region. How did you go about creating that chapter? Like, what are some of the issues that you tackle and how do you create a a strong community around and among yourselves? Very early on in the establishment of the chapter, CDE, the Center for Diversity and the Environment, they were blessed with a lot of grants and funding and support to establish the chapters. And so there were resources. Actually, any chapter to be able to sustain itself is the product of the local people. I know early on, the Center for Diversity and the Environment was very critical in the establishment of the Seattle chapter. And then there's the reality that CDE is located in Portland, Oregon, which is about four hours drive outside of Seattle. So on a day-to-day basis, for anybody who might be considering starting an environmental professionals of color type organization, it is all about the talent that you have and the networking that you do locally. And one of the precious lessons or teachings that I got from CDE is that your organization is only as strong as what the members put into it. And so early on, we had a pledge party, but it was not your typical fundraising pledge party. It was about what are you as a member willing to contribute to the life of our organization and to each other? And so our pledges looked like I happen to be a massage therapist and I have that to contribute or I'm a graphic artist and anybody who might need help with that, or I'm in HR and if you need help with career counseling or resumes, or I'm a grant writer. And the pledges that came in, oh my gosh, it's just heartwarming and so beautiful what people were willing to contribute and give of themselves. And I think that any effort, if you're willing to contribute something of who you are into it, it can only be a much more enhanced, enriched community. Yeah. It's sort of like you are combining your powers. (laughs) Yeah. But there's also skin in the game. Exactly. 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 And if we are not willing to invest ourselves into this, then why would people give money? Mm -hmm. And I just love that it was about that human relationship That's at the core of the community building. 
and then the fundraising can come later. I mean, I, that's not to deny in the society that we live in. Yeah, money does mean something. However, the chapter can decide for itself. What does that money mean and where does it come from? So the chapter can choose funding methods, et cetera, et cetera. That can be defined by the community. That's what's important. Because I'm guessing that you're familiar that with a lot of grant funding, there are initiatives that the funding organization wants for itself. And I've known organizations in the greater world, it doesn't matter what race, you know, or whatever, where organizations have lost themselves contorting to fit into whatever that funder wants to be able to get that money. Then you lose some integrity there. So how do you go about not losing your integrity as you are trying to fundraise? The million dollar question. <laughs> yeah, with planning and, dis- and accountability. How does the community define for itself what accountability looks like? And this is the harder part. At the beginning of the chapter, I I know that we had these discussions about we have become assimilated into this dominant society and we have these implicit biases in ourselves as well. We are part of the Borg, so to speak. And so how do we decolonize (laughs) ourselves and bring what we know as people of color to define leadership and accountability? And so we begin to transition out of the dominant society language and go into language that we as a community agree on. So instead of calling out, calling in, accountability, and every community is is going to define accountability differently for itself. And a big part of it is having shared leadership. So we started out with a core group of three and expanded out to six and At this point, there's about, let me see, if you count our origins in 2012 and today in 2020, we went from a beginning of like three co-leaders and now there's about, I think, nine co-leaders or co-organizers. That's how they identify themselves. And you have like over 300 members right? Over 400 at this point. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. And then there's a tenure, right? So the shared leadership, people, it's organized so that every two years, there's some people who roll off and then new people come in. And then activities and events, et cetera, et cetera. There's invitation to get involved and be part of this. Yeah. Yeah. Do you all ever conduct activities that are focused on how Black, Indigenous, people of color can kind of take care of themselves and establish themselves if they're within the environmental professions? A few years ago, one of the co-organizers received some grant money and one of the first career builder type events happened. And it included having a portrait photographer on site to take a portrait, a professional standards portrait of you. And then there were resume writers and career counselors. And then there were some sessions about self-care. That's awesome. And then last fall, the organizers put on a full day conference. It was just so cool. And it included, yeah, the sessions were all about breaking the green ceiling. Mm Mm-hmm. 
It was in response, BIPOC response to Dr. Dorsita Taylor's report in 2014 about how even though people of color are 40% of the U.S. adult population, there's only 12% on average residency of, of BIPOC in environmental employment. Mm-hmm. And even fewer in positions of leadership exactly. and in boards. I think it I can't remember the percentage, but it was like a single digit. (laughs) Yeah. So we still have a long way to go. Mm. We still have a long way to go. (sighs) Well, as we're coming to the end of our conversation, unfortunately, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about how to kind of take care of yourself in the environmental, like in building your career and creating that connection, that community around yourself. And you've been able to do that. And you're kind of evolving in that way of building the community around yourself. Do you have three pieces of advice that you would offer to other environmentalists of color who are looking to build a career in this space? Wow. Let's see. Understand oppression. Mm. And we've talked about it like for so long, being in this space of like, wow, that did not feel good. Right. And then, learning the history of it, learning the vocabulary, learning to be able to identify how this stuff manifests in the workplace. That's really, really important. Then how does it impact you and where do you stand? That is a huge, huge factor. And then the last piece of advice is do the most good for the most people over the longest period of time. Mm, That's probably... One of the, the best three pieces of advice I've heard. <laughs> I wish we met 10 years, 17 years ago. <laughs> and I just started my degree, but uh, <laughs> at least we've met now. Hey, I'm still learning and I plan on learning until the day I die. <laughs> That's great. That's how it should be. We never stop learning and growing. So we'll get into our lightning round of our session here. And I have a series of four questions and just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? Oh, for book, Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown and Dr. Henry Louis Gates's programming. Almost anything that Dr. Gates produces is gold to me. Okay. We will add those in our show notes. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Self-care, particularly exercise. What's your favorite exercise regimen, I guess? (laughs) Weightlifting and when I can, boxing. (laughs) I don't get it in the ring, but I like to punch a bag. That's the point. Very cool. That's a great outlet for just frustration and any kind of... You know it. You know it. Wow. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What's the best piece of advice you've received? Oh, very early in my life. Ask good questions. Mm. What's a good question, though? How do you determine what's a good question? One that makes the other person think. Mm. How, what, why? Yeah. The person who shared that with me, they said, it's easy to just respond. Yeah. That's the easy part. Coming up with a good question, that's harder. I hope my questions have been good through this session. (laughs) 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 Oh, yes, indeed. indeed. Very much so. (laughs) Finally, what is your superpower? Mm, Perseverance. 
It's mm-hmm. a good one. You need it <laughs> to get to this point and continue. Indeed. <laughs> awesome. Well, Belinda, this has been such a pleasure and I would love to continue the conversation and I would love for our listeners also to follow you on your journey. Is there a way for them to do that? Well, the primary one right now would be through the Urban Food Systems website at Seattle Parks and Recreation. And there is a monthly newsletter that people can sign up for. Yeah, we didn't get to talk much about Urban Food Systems, but maybe we can have you come back on again and talk about that another time. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Because I'm just super interested about food sovereignty mm. issues and then how to create inclusion through the experience of growing your own food, especially in urban communities and those that are marginalized. Oh, yeah. It's a way to empower themselves, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if not me, I could definitely make recommendations. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Belinda. This has been an absolute pleasure. And I'm so grateful that I found you. <laughs> And it's been such a therapeutic and a wholesome conversation. And I'm grateful for you kind of opening up yourself and sharing your stories with us. So thank you. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.